0: Thanks everyone for coming. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, welcome to that very special uh, intro episode of the Music Trick Me. Uh, we are recording live today, and for this occasion, we've decided to play the jingle live for you. So here it comes One, two, three, four. You're listening to the
1: Music Trick Me, a podcast by French recording engineer Elise Mollet where music insiders chat about their experience in the industry and all the tricks they've learned along the way.
0: The music tricked me. Ooh.
1: Hello. Oop. Hello and welcome to the launch of The Music Tricked Me. I'm Char Dullahan, a freelance writer and I'm here with the incredibly talented Elise Smollet, the
0: host of The Music Tricked Me. Elise, Hi. how are you? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. I'm a little bit nervous, um, you'll see, but uh, I'm very delighted to be here tonight and thanks all of you for coming. Um, thanks Char for... Uh, hosting this episode with me today.
1: Absolutely. We're switching it up today. Usually you would be introducing and interviewing
0: the guests. However, it's me interviewing you today. <laughs> yeah, people were just like, who's your special guest for the intro episode? It's like, mm, very special guest. It's me. It is you.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So, Elise, tell me a little bit about yourself.
0: Um, I'm Elise. Um, That's a good start. I'm 28. I'm currently sitting in Camden Studios, where we're recording this episode. Um, I people won't see it because it's a podcast. But uh, I'm Asian. I was born in Vietnam, <laughs> but uh, I was adopted when I was three months old. Uh, so I've been raised as a French person my entire life. So I'm actually French. But um, a lot of people ask about my origin, so I thought it was worth mentioning. I record, mix, and produce bands. Um, so that's my main trade. And I, I talk to my plants a lot, and I have weird dreams that's it incredible (laughs) incredible so tell me a little bit about your background as a sound engineer um I I was lucky that I always knew that I wanted to be in the studio I always wanted to be a studio engineer I tried live I tried um yeah being in theatres that kind of stuff but it was always like music I as you could see I pretend to play the bass but actually piano is my main (laughs) instrument so I was always involved in music. I studied piano when I was seven and I was also quite a technical person. So I liked math and physics and stuff like that. So sign engineering was a great way of having both uh, the technical aspect and the creative aspect of music. I discovered that when I was in high school, someone else was really passionate about sound engineering. And if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be where I am today. They were so contagious about talking about sound engineering and production. I was like, what is production? So they got me into that and it was really, really nice. So I need to thank them for that. And in terms of my journey, I started as an intern in Iceland in 2016. After my master's, um, I went to Reykjavik and I was in a studio called Greenhouse Studios. I was there for a couple of months. And then when I was there, I met a British engineer and he just moved from the UK to set up his studio in Iceland. And we clicked. We decided to like work together. So I went to his project studio. Project studio is basically when you build the studio while having sessions and all the money that you generate um, goes into improving the studio. So that's why we did a lot of building a studio from scratch. It was really good. I love acoustics and I'm a very DIY person, as some people know. So it was really interesting to do that. Uh, But then at the end of that year, 2016, I realized having a conversation with an engineer who was in Ireland and knew I wanted to establish myself in Ireland uh, because that's where I wanted to live. He just mentioned that when you're in another country, when you're not in Ireland. He was like, that's cool that you're in Iceland. But all the time you're there, you're not in Ireland. You're not making contacts. You're not, you know, establishing yourself there. So I thought it didn't make like a ton of sense to be there. So I decided to move back to Ireland in 2017. The 1st of January 2017, I was like, "New year, new me." <laughs> so um, yeah, that was a fresh start for the year. It was great. I actually worked in hospitality for... That year, I was trying to stabilise my finances. I didn't know anyone in studios, so I was like, I don't know where to start. I'm just going to work in a restaurant. And then um, I was earning a good bit of money and I was like, oh, that's great. I can save money. I had no social life as well. I I hadn't made friends yet and I was working so much long hours. I saved a lot of money and I bought a lot of gear. (laughs) So uh, looking back, I don't regret at all having done that one year in hospitality because um, I bought my big speakers, um, a lot of things. And in October 2017, or maybe this summer, an offer came up on Facebook. Um, I think it was maybe on Recording Ireland. It's like a Facebook group that sound engineers and musicians from Ireland are, can be part of. And there was an ad that said, uh, looking for someone between 18 and 24 years old for an apprenticeship in that studio called Analog Catalog in County Down, beside Newry. And I applied for it, basically got The job so moved to Uri. Had a fun experience in Uri for like a few months, and I was like, There's nothing, there's no you know, no venues, there's no there's like maybe one cinema, there's not much happening in Uri. Um, so I moved to Belfast after that, so I could be like closing off to the studio. Dublin would have been a bit far away, um so I moved to Belfast and I did an apprenticeship basically in analog catalog. Um, for six months ish. It was basically the idea was to train someone to be an analog engineer. So the name analog catalog is because everything is done to tape machines there. There's no computer. So I think uh, Julie who runs the studio was looking for someone who didn't have a lot of experience with digital so they could actually learn from scratch the process of analog recording. And after those six months of apprenticeship I became freelance but I kept working mainly in the studio um, there's two rooms there. There's the 24 track with the two-inch tape machine, and then there was a smaller room, uh, the 16-track room, where there was a smaller machine. And I would assist sessions uh, in the big room, and I started doing my own session in a 16-track room, which was great. So, did yeah, a lot of it was a lot of recording. So um, my my main trade is recording, um, and then the studio had the capacity to do mixing as well. But it was a lot about recording. Um, so that was like for two, three years that I did this great experience, and from that point, basically, I thought that people still prefer to record digitally, so it was good to show that I could do both. And I did decided to move back to Dublin, so I could also do some Tools recording. And um, so I reached out to. Camden Studios, or more Rory Koshnan, who's a mixing engineer um, upstairs in Camden. And I saw on his website that he does hybrid mixing, which means he has analog gear, but he also works in the box in Pro Tools. So for me, it was a nice bridge to keep that analog outboard and analog way of doing things, analog equipment, but also making sure that I was staying in the trend of people mainly recording digitally, so it wouldn't mean I'm too behind and people are afraid of working with me because I only do analogue recording, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Was it
1: daunting to learn an entire medium from scratch, like with analogue?
0: It wasn't that scary or daunting. Um, It's a bit like driving a car. So I was thinking about it the other day. When you know how to drive a car in general, you might take a few moments to adjust to someone else's car or if you've been driving an automatic and then you go to a manual it might take a, a, a bit of adjusting. So Pro Tools is driving an automatic and then Analog, a tape machine, is driving a manual. But you kind of know like what's happening on the road already. So recording is like being on the road, you already know what to look for. So you don't have to learn that much about the car itself. That said, what I thought was tricky and still think is going to be like the main part of my journey is to train your ears. And when you're recording Analog, it's really... Putting the focus on that is that you need to be a really good engineer, not in terms of like pushing buttons, but listening and anticipating what's going to happen in the room and communicating with musicians. So that's what takes the longest for someone. It's not so much the tape machine itself, but really learning how to listen and be a good recording engineer. Absolutely.
1: And from what you're saying, like in regards to your journey, would you prefer recording digitally or with analog, like as a sound engineer?
0: Um, for me, it doesn't matter too much. Uh, I understand for musicians, it might be a matter of like being in a comfort zone or there's a studio that they like and it just happens, you know, they record to tape or that studio only works with portals. Because the skills that I learned with analog recording are completely Transferable to recording digitally. Basically, when you learn to do analog recording, you have no really safety net, which is which is okay. I love the challenge, um, so it's fine. It's really making you think about what's happening in the room with the musicians. So regardless of if you record to Pro Tools or to tape machine, you have to have those skills. Um, and it doesn't really matter where it's going, if it's on the reel or on the computer. So that's, yeah.
1: So would you take more of a, like, I don't want to rely on the mix and fixing the mix
0: approach yeah. to your 100 process? Yeah, 100%. That's literally, I can understand, like, it's really nice, like, the tools that we have nowadays to being able to, um, because musicians may have given their best on the day and it's still, there's still like maybe something a little bit like fluffy and they're not happy with. So I'm not saying like I won't fix anything in the mix, but it's about not being lazy, both as the engineer and the musicians. So you can thrive to give your best and pushing the song and be like, was I actually, you know, exactly on time? Or should I try like a bit more of a laid back take? And, you know, it's just, it's just important that, um, like what you record needs to be exciting on the day. And then for people to go home and have something that they've heard in the studio that they're happy with, and not you being like, oh, I'll tidy that up later and then I'll send you a rough mix. It doesn't make sense. It's cool to have like musicians vibing to it. And even when you do overdubs, so when you record, you first record the backing track, usually the drums, the bass, the foundation of the song and maybe guide vocals. And then you start putting keyboards and, you know, extra backing vocals and stuff like that. If there's like a lot of mess from your backing track, then not only you're going to send in the people's headphones, like a lot of things that don't really make sense, or it's going to be cluttered. And for your decisions as an engineer during the overdub time, then you're not sure how much of the frequencies you need to give to that instrument or that backing vocals because you've just left everything flat uh, on the backing track. So if the vocals that you recorded, the main vocals, are not EQ'd or compressed or affected the way it should sound like on the final mix, then your decisions are a bit more like hesitant for the overdubs, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, was it your question? <laughs> I can't remember now. <laughs> I can go on tangents forever about like analogue recordings, but I'm like... <laughs> here for your
1: tangents, absolutely. Um, but you've really pioneered like Adobe Atmos here in Ireland at the moment. Like, can you tell me a little bit about that? Like what inspired you to go ahead with that? Uh
0: so yeah, I live both in the past and the future. So <laughs> I do analogue recording, that's the the side of the past. But I also in 2022 um started to set up a Dolby Atmos room with Rory Koschnin. So um, I can't remember what I said earlier, but when I came here <laughs> in Dublin in 2020, uh, he's the person I started to work with. He's a mixing engineer and he's been a great mentor for that. And eventually our relationship became also like a team of me engineering, him producing, so I still assist him on his big mix projects. But when we can, we also do things where I'm more engineering and he's producing or, you know, he's going to mix the projects that we engineer, that kind of stuff. And he used to work with George Michael back in the days when he was in London and they had reached out to him to remix the back catalogue in Dolby Atmos. And both him and me are really nerdy, which is great. we always like, yeah, we can talk about gear forever. And he's an engineer, like by trade, um, uh, first, not just a mixing engineer. He was a recording engineer first. So he really understands my language, which is great. And we decided to set up the room because also in uni, I had done some research about uh, spatial audio. So I was already quite interested in that topic anyway, um, how we perceive, like, sounds and how the fact of having more speakers so Dolby Atmos for, for people who may not have heard of it is when you have ceiling speakers and back speakers it's a bit like a 5.1 but even more speakers <laughs> always more um so it's 11 speakers in our case four ceilings two sides two rear and then two front uh, am I forgetting um oh there's three three fronts sorry that's 11 and I did math <laughs> um so that was like the uh, around Christmas between 2021 and 2022. We're just like, let's do it. So we just like started setting up the, the speakers and trying to make sure they're on phase, that kind of that things you have to think about when you set up the Dolby Atmos. And then we were sent the stems of George Michael back catalog and it was amazing. <laughs> just listening to just the bass, just the drums and then George Michael's vocals isolated. was just like, oh my God. Um, so it's a remixing job. It's not like you have to mix you know, EQ and compress and process, you just have to rebalance things. But it's really interesting for your brain, because the number of speakers really influence how you're going to mix and balance things. And um, on a technical side of things, uh, my scientific side was really like triggered. It was just like, "Ooh, cool, like, how do you make this work? And, you know, um, and it, the software itself is quite complicated, so you have to, like, really understand what's happening. Um, I know Alex in the control room right now will understand the pain that it was to, like, set it up all. <laughs> but uh, we managed and it was a great experience. Um, so, yeah, check out the George Michael in Dolby Atmos. It's really I mean, cool. <laughs> George Michael is an incredibly,
1: like, it's it's incredible that you have that artist in your repertoire. Like, what other artists have you worked with recently?
0: Um, so not in Dolby Atmos, but uh, I engineered uh, the blizzards, uh, Ronan Keating. I worked with Noah, who are in the room. (laughs) Uh, I worked with Gilherme, also in the room, worked with the Faye, also in the room. (laughs) All my friends are here tonight. And um, we mixed also Leon Rimes, some writer. Uh, When I was in Analog Catalog, I worked with Junior Brother, Melts, Ifa Wolf, Bui. So there's been like a lot of different genres and people involved. So uh, yeah, I've seen a lot of different artists. And uh, yeah. It's a real hodgepodge of sound, <laughs> honestly. I like it. Like my little sweet spot is alternative music, indie, prog rock, that kind of stuff. But um, I'm classically trained, so I do recordings of classical music as well Um, I go back to France from time to time with um, an engineer called Alban Moreau and he's like one of the top notch engineers for classical music so I assist him for engineering um, when I go there so I do it like from time to time classical recording and then a lot of like folk in Analog Catalog because it's very like uh, prone to work with tape, uh, indie and folk and then here in Camden, because it's in the city centre, it's going to be a lot of rock bands and, you know, um, uh, people coming for for pop stuff, uh, vocal production. So, yeah, I've seen like a lot of broad things uh, over the years. But sure.
1: what's next for you? You know, do you have any specific goals you want to work on over the next year? Uh,
0: more prog rock, if I can. <laughs> Alternative. I want to make noise. <laughs> Loads of noise. Have a lot of fun. Um... I still work with Noah and the Faye and Gilherme I mentioned earlier um, I work a little bit with Brazzy from the Blizzards uh, on his solo project as well and the idea is that maybe I can bring back a bit of tape machine recording in the equation uh, I don't know I don't want to force it to anyone but trying to explain what that analog recording mentality can be um, how it benefits the artists and without them having to worry about it so if I take charge of putting those skills in place in the session then they will benefit from it without having to worry too much about the tape machine if that makes sense so i'm trying to like set that up um slowly but surely this year i was doing a lot of mixing last year but this year i'm going back to my passion recording getting bands in the room together Slay some songs and just like, you know, making music that we're really excited about. Um, I love still doing like vocal production. Someone coming just to do overdubs or, you know, working on a pop track. Um, it's really interesting to do that as well. But really like where I get my kicks is really having the people in the room and just be like, yeah, let's make music. And then you come back in the control room and you just push all the faders like, yeah. Sounds cool. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so after working in the music industry for the guts of the last seven years, what inspired you to make the music trick to me? Like, how did the podcast come to
0: life? Oh yeah, we're here to talk about the podcast. Yeah, hey. <laughs> but tape machines, sure. Um Do you want the actual answer for that question? Yeah, go on. <laughs> so the idea didn't come from me. A lot of you know, I'm going to give the credit fully to Paul Caffrey. He's a person I met actually in Camden Studios. I was recording his audiobook last year. His book is his book is called. If I try to remember correctly, the work before the work, hidden habits, elite cells, professionals used to outperform competition. So it was like about increasing your your cells, and it was like a very businessy thing. And it was like two or three days of recording, so we went for beers and a few chats. And he was really interested in the studio. He was like, "Oh, that's so cool!" And what do you do? You work with Ronan Keating and the Blizzard. So cool. <laughs> I was like, so he was really interested and great to chat to. And then I was just like, well, what about you? What can you tell me? What, How can I increase my business as a self-employed person? Because I only started recently. And, you know, what can make me stand out? And he was like, let me have a think. And he came back the following day. I was like, he was like, I had a look. There's not a lot of podcasts about audio engineering. Um, have you thought about that? I was like, no, I haven't. And initially I was just like, can I do a podcast? Like, how would I do it? Would I have the time? Um, how, how would that benefit me? What can I inject in it? And what started as his idea became like a genius idea. I was like, hold on a minute. Like, I'm not from here. I'm not from Ireland. So I never have the chance to connect with people. Um, if I do a podcast I can just reach out to people and be like oh I'd love to interview that Uh, I'd like to interview you about your studio or you know this album you released or you as a tour manager what it you know what your job involves Uh, so being able to reach out to more people in Ireland that was the first reason why I thought it was a great idea then the second thing was that I'm generally very curious so I go to You know, the conferences for Ireland Music Week or Output Festival? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I always go to them. And I think as much as I love microphones and I can nerd about it for a long time, I don't want to know just about that. I don't want to be an engineer that's just coming in in the studio and just like, yeah, whatever you do with your single after, I don't really mind. Because it's really, it can be almost heartbreaking. Some people spend so much money in, in studio time And then you want to support them. You want them to do well because, you know, it's their blood, sweat and tears that they put in their music. So I don't want to be just an engineer who's like got no idea how to help musicians I work with. So I thought like the podcast would be really expanding my knowledge about the music industry because it's moving so fast as well with like Spotify. And I'm just like, how does Spotify work? And what does it mean to be on a label? Why are so many people self-releasing now? And I needed to have the answers to those questions for myself and then for others. Um, so that was the second reason why I thought it was a brilliant idea. And then the third reason is because I'm a woman in the industry. I come across a lot of people who are just like, "Yeah, let's try to work towards making the industry more inclusive." And do you feel like you're a part of it because you're a woman in the industry? And I was just like, "Well, I don't. I've been lucky to not feel like I was a woman in the industry. I've never been like discriminated for that." But obviously, I would love to support uh, women and gender expansive people. So the podcast would be a good channel for that because I can choose which guests I'm interviewing and I can inject my values in the podcast. And another one of my value that I think is also coming through when I go to Ireland Music Week and I put that kind of things, they're really um, underlying the importance of mental health nowadays. I think COVID and the fact that there's less stigma about talking about mental health helps people talking about it more. And I was like, I also want to talk about it because I really advocate for mindfulness in my personal life and in work. I need it because you can go mental. Like it's really, it's a hard industry to be part of. Um, So you have to really look after yourself. And I thought in the podcast, I could really not make it all you know, glamorous, but actually talk about real things and be like, guys, if you need support, there's resources out there and there's help, that kind of stuff. So I do that in my personal life. And I thought the podcast would be an amazing channel to do that publicly and to open the doors for people to like start talking to one another about that. Um I'm shivering a bit. I don't know if you can hear like my voice trembling. I'm like I'm a bit cold.
1: <laughs> it's just a little bit chilly in here, but it's it is. fine.
0: I'd also be an advocate for mental
1: health care support. I think it's incredibly important to destigmatize these things that everybody experiences. It's also very important to build community within the yes. industry. You know, that's the thing. For the inclusivity, did you purposefully with the podcast only reach out to women and gender expansive people or was it just
0: an open call? Either for the podcast, either I had someone specific in mind that I had come across or like, you know, working with Rory, I thought that was a bit of an obvious choice of a guest to ask him about his career and stuff like that. And then for anyone I didn't have, like, if I didn't have a specific guest in mind, I would have a topic in mind, like PR or like streaming or um, tour management. And for those, I would just, try to find guests, like potential candidates that would be not just males. So I wouldn't go like specifically just for women and gender expansive people. But if I could try to broaden my research, so it would be more equal opportunity. And if I could just go this little extra mile to research a bit more, if there was like a mastering engineer guy and a female mastering engineer, like I would offer both. And if both were like, interested and had like a similar content, interesting content that they could talk about. Maybe I would favor the female engineer because for once having that kind of shared experience from the female point of view would be good. So basically I didn't target it on purpose, but I really wanted to create equal opportunity and making sure that if I had like two male guests after that, maybe having two female guests to show like a broad range of lived experience in the industry. Absolutely. And I also noticed from like researching the podcast, The Music Tricked Me, like
1: most of your team is uh, women.
0: Yes. <laughs> Hello to you there. <laughs> so, um, yes, Roshin is actually the muse of this podcast. Thank you, Roisin. Uh, she's the one who inspired um, the title of the podcast. She did the logo. Um, she's a collage artist. Um, and Jill beside her is doing the intro with me. She helped me doing the jingle. She's been supporting like anything around this the, the podcast. Um, so it's just, again, it's like a coincidence, but not a coincidence. It's not like I reached out to them because they were female. It's because they were great. I love their art. I love their input, their energy. But it just happened they were women. And I think there's something also between women that's quite a symbiotic energy um but there's jordan also i uh, don't forget you jordan <laughs> i'm taking that moment to like thank the team actually because um i wouldn't have made it without them so it's been really really good to have their support and yeah on the inclusive side of things there it turns out we're all like either queer or, or allies and that also helps this idea of like inclusivity and Making it collaborative as well. That was one of my values.
1: It really complements the ethos of the podcast. An idea of like creating community for everybody. Absolutely.
0: I don't think you can like be the... Best version of yourself by yourself. You need the input of other people. You learn so much from others. Like, <laughs> Steph, you're gonna make me cry. <laughs> uh, we learn so much from one another all the time, and that's really important. Like, um that's what people sometimes miss recording just at home by themselves. They don't. A lot of people after COVID came back to the studio and were like, "Oh my God, it's so amazing to like bounce off ideas." with your friends and like other musicians so they can tell you like, oh, have you thought about that hook? Or, you know, maybe we should change the drums here. And then you don't have that if you're alone. And that's really something I advocate for is that collaboration. And I don't know, it's just, yeah, it's so like enhanced experience when it's shared with others, for sure.
1: Absolutely. But the main question is, what is the purpose of The Music Trick Me?
0: Who is this project aimed towards? The podcast is aimed... Primarily towards artists. Um, So a little bit with the idea of like someone starting in the industry uh, or even someone established and they don't really know where to start in terms of like knowing a bit more um, what they're getting into basically. So it would be for artists primarily that said, <laughs> I'm an engineer, so there's a lot of like nerdy, techy questions that I, you know, can't help asking sometimes. So I think for engineers, it can be good as well. As I said, so it's not just like knowing about microphones, but knowing what the industry means for the people you're working with, the musicians. For producers, it's really good as well. <clears throat> Anyone interested to? make a career out of being a tour manager or, you know, working in PR. Um, They can also tune into those specific episodes so they can know more about it and have the um, the experience of someone who's been established doing that job for like a few years. Um, And it's also like for people outside of the industry, I think, because a lot of my friends back at home, they're just like, we have no idea what you do. Like, what's your job? And I'm just like, well, maybe with the podcast, you'll know a bit more. And then when I thought about it, it's not just for people in the industry because um, the podcast is going to talk about how we consume music and how we use technology in, in any type of art or your, in general in our personal lives and um, how to look after your mental health. So I think that's topics that can speak for everyone.
1: Absolutely. It's kind of like breaking that proverbial glass ceiling between like industry knowledge and industry practice almost you know what I mean like breaking preconceptions of like what is there before
0: yeah that's that's the idea like I actually realized a lot of things by doing the podcast that I was not aware of and I'm just like if I didn't know then there's probably a lot of people out there who don't know either and it's just like and yeah we all love podcasts it's just like you stick that on your commute journey and you discover so many things in just a short amount of time and there's nothing better than hearing the Experience of someone else, like um, sharing their you know, their their tips and what they've learned, their do's and don'ts. Um, so that's that's what it's about.
1: You have like a plethora of quite well-known names featuring <laughs> on this podcast, the likes of Steve Albini. What yes. was it like to actually sit down and speak with someone like Steve Albini?
0: Um, Steve Albini was great. I learned a lot, actually, It's probably one of the episodes that stayed with me the most because he's a recording engineer as well, which is obviously the closest to what I do. Um, And he expresses a a view that's quite not heard of, is that you shouldn't think always about making a career out of your music. You don't have to think about it as a career. And I was like, wow. And as a recording engineer, (laughs) he said that... Not in our episode, but in other interviews that he's done in the past. He's got a gynecological approach to his work because he's not getting turned on by like the people he's working with. And I was like, what? And I came home with... (laughs) 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 I came home with... It's obviously like it makes everyone giggle. And then past the funny side of it, I was just like that's true. Would I do a better job if I wasn't trying to be emotionally involved with the music I'm working with? Uh, the answer is no. I need. I think I, I'm still that person who's very emotionally involved with the music I'm working with. But it had to make me think this way differently. But he's a great, great person. He, We're on the same wavelength in terms of trying to do things in a very ethical way building that community, Um, he's trying to make it for other people. It's not about himself at all. He's really trying to help others. And even if his views can sound quite harsh, like some people say he might be a grumpy person. I didn't think he was grumpy at all. Quite the other way around. He's very generous with his time, with, you know, how much he shares with others. Like there's plenty of interviews he's done before, but it was just making sure that it was still up to date and if he had changed his mind and what else um, he could put in the light given like the um, expansion of streaming services nowadays, that kind of things. So that was good. It made me do a lot of research, actually. I read a lot of his stuff, watched a lot of his interviews. And and again, yeah, it really made me think um, because his view is very different from the one that other people might have. You know, he doesn't really like working with labels he thinks that there's a lot of factors that can block your creativity if you're trying to be part of that big market if you're trying to make it
1: in capitalism as an artist
0: he's also like very anti-capitalist I from what I gather and I join him on that so yeah
1: (laughs) I can't wait to tune into the Steve Albini episode who else
0: can we expect to hear from on the podcast like what kind of guests are ahead of us So the nice thing is that there's guests from all over the world. There's people from Ireland, uh, from the UK, from the States. They're from all ages and genders. And they're all like doing very different jobs because I'm trying to not have people who um, maybe like for for that first batch of episodes having like um, one guest for each of their kind of field. So there's like a recording engineer, a mix engineer, there's a PR person, there's a musician, a touring musician, uh, it's going to be a singer-songwriter. There's someone who runs a music venue. There's a tour tour manager, a uh, promoter rep, that kind of thing. So, yeah, um, I don't know if you would have heard of the people just yet, but you will You will hear about them uh, via the podcast. Uh, There's Rory Cushnin, so from Camden, the engineer I mentioned earlier. Uh, Kath Hurley from Liverpool. She's the one who runs the music venue. Maud, who's a French tour manager here based in Dublin. Lottie Field, who runs the My Local Studios in London. Um, so I went to see her in London, which is great. There's going to be uh, Meg Tarokrinios. She's the former head of curation of Spotify. So she's going to talk about playlists and curation. Um, I'm probably forgetting people. <laughs> but you, you'll discover them as the podcast goes on. So,
1: Were you familiar with your guests before you started recording? Or was it a process of making connections with new people as you went along?
0: It was a bit of a mix. There were people I knew before and then some others that I met during the Ireland Music Week conferences and some others like Steve Albini I knew because one of my friends is in Chicago. Uh, He works in the studio actually. So I kind of knew about him already. And um, yeah, it's been like, it's been a bit of a snowball effect. I started with like a few guests and then I started talking about the podcast to like music friends and there's like, oh, you should talk to that person or I've been thinking about that person. Um I can put you in touch. And it really like went on from and me doing some research about like what's this collective and who did this project for women in music or whatever. And then eventually coming across a certain name. I was like, I feel like I've I can know them from someone and then it's such a small industry. They know someone that I know or you know, it's just like uh, even the ones that I didn't know before it was kind of like really quickly, If it, it felt like I knew them. Um, apart from maybe the people from the States, but people from the UK and Ireland, uh, really, it's a close family.
1: And in regards to like the structure of the podcast, did you have like a specific formula in mind or was it just like a go with the flow type beat?
0: Um, There was not like a set structure for the episodes. I did a lot of research for each of them, so I kind of knew what questions I wanted to ask But then depending on their answers, there was loads of questions popping while we were chatting. So and when I was like putting the episodes together, I just realized that I probably like actually provoked it without realizing it. But they're kind of like doing it in two parts. There's uh, usually a first part where they talk about their job. So like, you know, what it's like to be uh, a mixing engineer or what it means to be a An artist manager and then they have another section of the podcast where they talk about a cause they support or a message that they want to convey about the industry or a bit of analysis about what's happening currently in the industry so maybe the best example is Kath Hurley um, who's this artist manager I was talking about she does talk about how to find the right manager for you and what she can do or can't do for her, her artists how to prepare for a release that kind of more factual objective things but then she started to talk about like the music venues that she runs in Birkenhead beside Liverpool and she talks about the the future of music venues and how so many of them closed in the UK and how music venues should change the way they're doing things now because it's really hard to stay open and on top of that she talked about being more inclusive in the industry she talked about not just women in the industry, but how to create allies in the industry, how to have men understanding what it's like to have that experience as a non-male person in the industry, which was amazing. And then she talks about mental health. She talks about like how Brexit impacted people and touring. So, you know, it's been like a lot of people talking about their jobs, uh, so people can have a better definition of each person's job, but kind of, quickly people go into what causes the support and their views on the industry which I think is the main point of the podcast um it can be informative but I think the key thing that I want to talk about with the guests is their views on the industry and how what's their journey and what they recommend others to try or to do to not do that kind of things.
1: Did the project turn out exactly as you expected it to or did it kind of like take on a life of its own
0: from its conception? Um It went beyond what I was expecting because it started in my bedroom and me being like, oh, I'll just, you know, do a bit of research and interviews and it will be kind of for me to like know more about the industry. And then people were just like, just go go for it. Just like, you know, you have to release it. It's going to be so good. And, you know, I know, as I said, a lot of people were just like, I know this person you could interview and, you know, can I chip in and help and support? And it became like a much bigger thing than I thought. And look at you all tonight being here just supporting the project, which is amazing. And uh, and yeah, people are just like, you're going to do uh, how many seasons? And I'm just like, whoa, <laughs> I haven't released one episode yet. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's, it's beyond what I was expecting. And um, the guests have been all amazing, uh, really positive people. They made me think, they made me laugh. I think I didn't realize the impact it would have on me thinking about how I feel in this industry, but it really had a massive impact on me. And, like, how did you come up with the name The Music Tricked Me? So, <laughs> the idea came from my kitchen in, in conversation with my housemate. As all best ideas do. <laughs> People think that the, the name comes from, like, trying to, like, um, expose the tricks of the music industry. Actually, it's not. Uh, we were discussing a song by Fight Buslim Lim called uh, Praise You.
1: Oh, love that track.
0: <laughs> and uh, Roshin, who I mentioned earlier was just saying to me um I was seven and I was trying to sing along because I love singing and came that moment where it's like praise you like a shoot and it goes on forever and she was like I don't know why I couldn't hold my breath for long enough I couldn't sing along to it and she said that's when the music tripped me and it tied in with an idea that I had the previous year where um I love listening to records and when I hear like production tricks, like things that catch your ear and you're just like, how did they do that? And I initially wanted to start an Instagram page about that. and I was like, I have no time for that. I'm way too busy. Mm. I'm going to be the only one interested in that. No one is going to like, What? Well, why doing this? Completely um. untrue, but continue. <laughs> but then, I, you know, this idea fell back in, in the back burner and I thought by doing the podcast, I could have a channel to actually talk about those things. So the idea is that at the end of each episode, the last segment is me asking the guests, when did the music trick you? When did you have those moments that you listened to a record and it was like, what the hell happened? Or you went to a performance and you were just like, what have I just seen? So there's going to be a Spotify playlist actually for the podcast where I'm going to put like all those records that people mention that they were just like, you know, mind blown or something where it happened. So I'm all in for that. So that's that's where it comes from. Well, Elise, when did the music trick you? I knew you were going to ask me that. Uh, How much time do you have? Um, Where do I start? Um, I knew eventually someone would ask me this question. I have a few. I think if you do kind of in chronological order, when I was like a a kid and I listened to Green Day, American Idiot. And the songs were going in one another. And I was like, whoa, that is so cool. And I discovered, you know, some people might say no, it's not a concept album, but I think it's a concept album. And the fact that it's stories and it was just flowing into one another. I would argue that it's a it, concept album. It is, album. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, in that same era, I was listening to um, The Diary of Jane by Breaking Benjamin. <laughs> I'm a rock girl. Very good. Um. <laughs> Do you know that the snare at the beginning, the snare sound is not the same as the snare when like, you know, there's like this little intro. Yeah. There's a specific snare sound. And then when the band kicks in, like it's a different snare. And I was like, whoa. I didn't know that. Exactly. Me neither. And I was like, wow. Um, but that's like more rocky stuff than in the, I can talk about music, you know, parts, not just like production tricks. When I listened to Steve Reich, I went to one of his gigs, maybe seven eight years ago and they played pulses uh, from the album music for 18 musicians and it's like so there's two pianists or one pianist I can't remember but they basically play the same part piano part but slowly slowly but surely they start like uh, shifting the second part like by a few milliseconds so initially it's synced and then it start like not being synced anymore and it's it's pulsing that's why it's called pulses and that is like brilliant it's just genius. Uh, in the same kind of vein, if you listen to Blood F- Blood Flood by Ol' the cowbell that the drummer plays, I always find it's a random pattern. I can't follow like what he's playing on on the drums, and I've tried like several times. I wish I could play the track right now. I'll play it <laughs> after for you guys, but you're just like I have no idea how he's playing. Like if he's got an actual pattern in mind or if he's like playing completely randomly. Um, still time for more? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, the Power of Equality by Red Hot Chili Peppers has two drum kits. In it, pan left and right. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Oh, I think there's a level 42 track as well that starts with two snares panned on left and right. And I'm just like, this is genius to put two drum kits. And um, what else? Oh, Buena Vista Social Club, that eponymous album. When I moved to Newry, actually, and I started setting up my big speakers, you know, the ones I was referring to yes, earlier. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I was testing them in my room and I put like that Buena Vista Social Club album. And I was listening to it, closing my eyes, vibing to it. And I thought someone was coming like in the door behind me in my room it was because the album was recorded live with all the musicians together there was no overdubs I think or maybe there was but like the main thing is that it was recorded in a room together so you must hear like someone like opening a door or something and I thought like the spatial of like the recording was so realistic that I thought someone was coming in, in my office I was like wow you should yeah give that a spin it's really I can't remember which song it was but it stayed with me so much because of like Hello. Those, <laughs> and there's no one.
1: It's those visceral moments in a record. Like I totally understand. There's this moment in Fiona Apple's Fetch the Buttcutters album where there's like dog barking in the background. You turn around <laughs> and you're like, oh my
0: God, who is my dog exactly. going off right now? No. Uh, and you just reminded me also, there's a, another track, uh, A Day in a Life by the Beatles. I read the book by Geoff Emmerich, uh, their engineer, um, maybe last year or two years ago, called uh, Here, There and Everywhere. And he explains how they did like the massive piano fade at the end. So the very last chord of A Day in the Life by the Beatles is like a massive blong. And then it lasts for like 30 seconds or something. So they explained it was three of the Beatles, their assistant uh, and George Martin playing the Hammond. So the the four guys were playing like four different pianos. George Martin was playing the Hammond. They were all playing the same chord at the same time. And then the engineer, that's when it's interesting for me as an engineer, he had like the faders down, the gain down on the desk so like the chord would be obviously quite still loud because there was like five people playing together and he would like slowly but surely like push the faders up and the gain up so it would feel like he was not fading like that quickly, he would actually like push the sustain and it created that infinite sustain Um, so yeah, listen to that, it's amazing and reading his book was just like so inspiring in terms of creative ideas so that would be a few of them i'm probably missing some of them but um there's countless countless. <gasps> i forgot my favorite one oh, hold God on God. that's the reason why okay no there's two of them <laughs> that michael jackson song what is called uh uh, baby be mine and there's like the smoothest key change i've ever heard in my life and i was like did they like very speed the tape machine slightly because it, it like listen to the backing vocals it's towards the end it's like three minute 20 ish or something like that and i like the key change like the smoothest ever and i was like what the hell uh so that really like caught my ear and then my favorite one is rebel yell by billy idol Ooh. and i know some of my friends will be listening to that episode and be like can you stop talking about this tune, please? Because you keep talking about it, I just go like a broken record. I'm just like, have you listened to that song? Because there's a solo, guitar solo, in the middle of it. It sounds like a guitar, like a a pistol, um, kind of doing like. I do it really badly. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a reverb. It's an effect that they push to the max, and it sounds like a pistol gun, uh, and and it's just a guitar going to an effect, and I'm just like. Wow. So like, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I almost forgot it, but that's my favorite by far. Um,
1: Incredible. Before we turn to the audience for questions, can you tell me when the first episode is going to be released?
0: The first episode is going to be released on the 2nd of March. I'm very excited about that. We're going to release this uh, intro episode at the same time as the first episode with Rory Koshnan. So I'm really excited about it.
1: Beautiful. Thank you so much, Elise, and I'm incredibly excited for the launch.
0: Thank you so much, Cher, and then yes, uh, I'm very welcoming your questions. If you have any, please feel free. Uh, I think I forgot to mention a few things as well that I might. Um...
1: We can cut this out and post. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the industry is fake. It's all fake.
1: <laughs> so, um, like, just why Ireland?
0: Why did I move to Ireland? Yeah. Um, someone asked me that recently. And the best way I can describe it is I really fell in love with Ireland the way you fall in love with someone. So sometimes you can't really explain why exactly. But you just have like a gut feeling that it's the right place for you. So um, I first came in Dublin when I was 19-ish. Uh, I was interning in Wheeland. Uh, doing some live sound and I was living with Irish people and I just fell in love with Wheelings and Dublin and living with Irish people and yeah it was literally that falling in love with the people here first but then I realized also that to be in the music industry it was going to be either probably Paris or London and I think those are like quite big cities for me um On a professional level, I would see myself in those cities. On a personal level, I think I need to be in like a smaller space because that idea of community that we talked about, I need to feel close to people. And I think the idea of commuting for like hours every day is not really um, what would benefit from my mental health. So that was really important for me to be in a place that is good for my mental health. And I know there might be less structures and opportunities in Ireland, but uh, no regret, um, I really like being here, so that's why. I have a question about tape. Go on. If that's okay. Yes, um, always. What do you think it is about tape that like, attracts people? Do you think it's, because there's obviously a the sound you were talking about, Um, Albini earlier on, who is very clear about his, you know, tape has a very specific sound and that's what he loves about it. Or for you, is it the um, the process that you don't have the editing capabilities that you have for Pro Tools? So, is, is the sound of tape, the sound, the actual sound of the sound, uh, the audio going onto the tape, or is it the fact that you can't edit it to death like you can on Pro Tools? Uh, it's a good question. It's, it's both, really. Um, sonically, there is a bump in the low end from the tape. So when you do like calibration on a tape machine, you actually can see that when it goes in the low end, it starts like going at plus two three dB. So there's that bump in the low end, like that warmth that people talk about. And then it kind of smooths the high end as well. It's never, I find, as harsh. That said, the studio, the mics that you use, the performance will matter way more than the medium that you use. So tape machine or computer, as I said, um, is, not, is nowhere near as important as the way you run the session. So the second part of what you said is the more important aspect of what I love about analog recording is that it gives me so much focus So you're not distracted by the screen. So it's the same as like when you go to the pub and there's a TV on, uh, you try to have a conversation with your friends and it can be the football on. And I don't follow football at all, but like my eyes are always going to go to the TV. I can't help like looking at it. And because there's a screen, I'm just like attracted to it. And I think it's the same in the studio. And it gives a lot of discipline because of that. And the fact that you can't, as you say, edit, you know, um, you have less that fix in the mix mentality that forces you to um well first prepare like how many tracks you're gonna you're you're gonna use if you need like sixteen track twenty four track the reels have like a finite um time on it, so you can run like thirty minutes on a fifteen inches per second reel, so you have to tell you have to know how long are the songs uh you need to know how many overdubs are gonna go on top of that because otherwise you're gonna run out of tracks. So you need to, it forces you to have that conversation beforehand with the musicians, which I think we should have anyway in digital. You should communicate and say like, what's the tempo for that? And, you know, uh, what is your vision for that song? So it forces both the artists and yourself as the engineer and producer to think ahead. Um, And the other aspect of it is like, it's making sure things sound good in the room and adjusting things as you go. So if the musicians need to play a different dynamic, they need to um, do something different, or even like it almost puts like a magnifying glass on things to record to tape that you have to be really careful about details because you can't fix things as much. So you have to push yourself to like the best and really anticipate things and be more ingenious in your Uh, ways of working around things Um, you don't have the computer as the backup uh, you don't have the session saved and the recalls and that kind of stuff so you have to be really careful about everything and I think for your brain it's really powerful because you're doing more because the machine doesn't do everything for you so that's what I love about analog recording but there's also like yeah a sonic's coming from that and the fun thing that uh, when the song is appropriate to do so you can vary speed as well so it's really cool you can do backing vocals that sound like the chipmunks or you know really low vocals or you can like detune the Beatles like I don't know if you watched my McCartney 321 documentary uh, on Disney Plus and he says that there was a solo that he couldn't do. So they half sped like the tape and he was like playing half speed. I was like, yeah, that's grand. I can play the solo half speed. And then they sped it back up. So it's like really like handy to have those tools as well. So you can be either creative or work around problems with it um, thanks to it. So, yeah. (laughs) Elise, you've
1: worked with so many different artists and so many different people. And studios can be very vulnerable and intense spaces as well, long hours and many personalities. How do you navigate studio tension or issues within the studio on a personal level rather than a technological level?
0: That's a good question. Um, That's why I do need to be careful about how I feel in my personal life because you kind of bring it in the studio with you. Um, So I think... Just the same way I would be with friends. It's just like listening to the other person a lot and everyone is going to be so different. So that's why it's dangerous to have like formulas. Um, I go in every session thinking like, you know, the person is going to feel different or um, the weather is going to be different. For that, you need to adapt. So it's really about making sure that you catch the small details of it's one o'clock. Maybe people are hungry. Whatever you can feel for you can be true. It's probably true for musicians in the room with you. Um, and also, the thing I want to do this year and I started doing is to record myself. Um, so, I'm not a performer. I like making music for the crack. But what I try to do more is do backing vocals on like friends' tracks or record like a, a song for my friend's wedding and just putting the headphones and trying to play guitar. You saw me trying to play bass tonight and stuff. It's like, how does it feel to be a musician and to be like, oh, I need to nail that take. I'm so stressed. I'm like, uh, the headphones feel quite claustrophobic. I can't hear myself really well. The drums are too loud. I need to have that experience on the other side to put myself in their shoes. So I kind of try to be also um, recording myself so I can understand what artists are going through. But just, yeah, generally it's about m- paying attention to people, making sure they're fed, they've slept, slept okay. They might have something in their life you're not aware of, um, issues at home or whatever and understanding what the song means to them as well so having a bit of an understanding of their background as a band or I like to discuss lyrics so I always print lyrics um so I can keep track of like oh we need to redo that line or you know what do you mean by do you want to enhance that word that kind of thing so it's really also understanding the piece of music that's been that's been played um I think is an important part of it um it's music after all that we're doing so
1: What about the um,
0: how often can we expect the music trick to me? So I'm going to release every two weeks, which gives a bit of time to also have on the Instagram of the music trick to me some content about each episode. So they the records or places or um, collectives that people talk about in their episodes, I'm going to put some links on the Instagram so it becomes a bit more interactive. So it's not just listening to the podcast and not being able to access those resources afterwards. So yeah, follow the Instagram if you want to to have that kind of more graphical side of things, to have like visual of what people talk about. But yeah, every two weeks... And
1: where can we hear the podcast? Where can we expect what streaming platforms will it be available on?
0: Uh, it's probably going to be released like um, wherever available. Um, I think Spotify is my main um, mm-hmm. because, as I said, there's going to be that Spotify playlist as well. So it helps me connecting things. But it's going to be like also back at home in France. People listen to Deezer and a lot of people listen to Apple. And I can host it also on the website, themusictrickme.com, just to have the episodes on the website. And I just remembered what I wanted to say about the future of the podcast, because a lot of people say, like, what do you see next for it once it's released? And it's because I was talking earlier with um, Hot Press and they asked me that question. um, And I was saying, well, the idea is that once it's released in the wild, it's still that idea of community and collaboration. I want people to like come to me and be like, I love that episode, but I thought this one was maybe a bit hard to understand. Or I'd love this person to be interviewed. Uh, hello, I'm an artist. I have no idea what this job is. It, you know, uh, can you do an episode about that? So I really want people's input. It's not about me. I really want to hear what content people are willing to have and for that reason having the Instagram and the website the email is for people to really reach out so they can be part of it as well like as I said it's going to be a beautiful project if we are all part of it so feel free to reach out definitely absolutely and I see there's one question from the crowd yeah I
1: have a question um who's your dream guest having this
0: podcast that was another question from hot press and I was like I don't know <laughs> I actually dream big Elise who do you want well, to talk to To be completely fair, since he's asked me that question like half an hour ago, I thought I don't have expectations on a guest. Every person, like I interviewed someone who's 26 and is only starting in the industry. And that was as valuable to have her input as it was to have Steve Albini's. So there's not like a dream guest because, you know, they have achieved more. It's not maybe how I see things for the podcast. It's literally have the door open for anyone to share their views and without prejudice of how much they've done in their career. So, um, so sorry. <laughs> I did mention Steely Dan and uh, <laughs> yo. <laughs> um, I would have loved to interview Schmidt who's an engineer I really respect, but he passed away last year. That would have been a really good guest to have. But hopefully there's going to be more people interested to participate in the podcast. And I'm sure all of them are going to be equally interesting to hear. So, yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much, Elise, for taking the time to speak to me today. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Shara. Thank you, all of you, for supporting the project. And, uh, you know, happy listening.